episode 112, Count Me In. I'm Bob Keckeisen, and you're listening to the July 28, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. marks the 23rd decennial census taken by the United States government. These days, we've become accustomed to receiving and returning our census materials in the mail. But over a century ago, the census relied almost entirely on census takers going door to door to gather this vital information. Join collection specialist Donna Ray Pearson and me as we examine a satchel and a very official looking identification badge used by a United States census worker in 1900. And then, in honor of the just-completed Tour de France bicycle race, we asked you to connect William Allen White with the most famous cyclist in the world, Lance Armstrong. Did the Sage of Emporia have what it takes to wear the yellow jersey? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, count me in. When you're down and all your other Good morning, Donna Ray. Good morning, Bob. Okay, well, today we're talking about a satchel, which is like a suitcase, sort of briefcase type looking thing. Right. I, know, I see is, satchel is a, as kind of an old, old term. term. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's a satchel and, and a badge that's associated with the United States Census that was taken 110 years ago, way back in 1900. So, uh, first, could you describe those two items for our listeners? Well, the bag kind of if you can get in the mind of an old style doctor's bag it's okay. black with a handle mm-hmm. and a single snap on the top of it uh, or maybe Mary Poppins bag oh, I'm not okay, sure something yeah, yeah <laughs> something like that um, and the badge itself is a very official looking it's mm-hmm. silver with an eagle on top with its head pointed to the left right okay. like on our yes. stamps yes, yes or something mm-hmm. and um, in, in really big bold black letters it has um, United States Census on it. Oh, so, on the badge. Okay. Yeah, it's very official. And it has 1900 also, just in case the census taker yeah. wanted to go out in, in 10 years or something. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I don't <laughs> or in know. case the people he was talking to didn't know what year it was. Yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Well, I'll remind our listeners they can see images of the satchel and the badge by visiting our website, kshs.org, and you can click on the podcast link and then you'll see the pictures. Um, so tell us a little bit about the U.S. Census. Why was it established and why are we doing this every 10 years? <laughs> um, democracy, ah, basically. Okay. Yeah, that was, that's really the bottom line here. Um, the census was written into the Constitution so we could determine how many people would be in the House of Representatives. Oh, okay. So and this really goes back to our representative government and right. how that's going to be apportioned. Uh-huh. Okay. Exactly. And they figured out lots of ways to apportion it. And we're not going to go into that because I don't understand it. So, <laughs> <laughs> But um, every 10 years, I don't know. I 
think it was kind of a random number on their part. But I can say that they needed that much time between the actual census taking, then the tabulating, then the generating of the reports, and then, you know, fighting about apportionment. Okay, sure. You know, it took about 10 years to, for that whole cycle to happen. We're much quicker at it nowadays. I think right. um, this census is going to take, start to finish, it. I think it's going to take nine months, right? I think. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a pretty quick one this time. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's uh, one of the reasons we wanted to feature the census is because we're, we're, you know, in a census Decennial now, I guess it's called. Yeah, yeah. we're in a census year. But uh, mm-hmm. now, my wife, who's a librarian, would say that the real reason for the census is not so much democracy as it is for research. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Genealogists love the census. Oh, uh, oh, I love the census myself. It's the biggest social survey, I think, mm-hmm. in the world, really. Um, well, we, have, we use it a lot in the museum here when we're doing research on artifacts and donors and donors' families. We go to the census quite a bit. Right, exactly. I mean, there's so much information you can glean from the census. It's a nice tool to have. Um, I don't know what they're going to do in 50 years, 70 years when this census yeah. comes out again. So. Oh, yeah, and, and everything will be digital then, yes, too. Yes, so. exactly. Oh, well, but, well anyway, uh, back to our artifact. Uh, <laughs> who, who owned the, these artifacts, the satchel and the badge? Well, well, it was a guy named John Bissell. He was born in Pennsylvania, okay. and he came to Kansas in about the 1870s. So he was a homesteader, and um, he went... To he basically raised cattle and sheep, um, mm. but he was also, you know, those they were multi. They had many careers all at mm. the same time. So he was also a state legislature. Okay, so he did serve in the Kansas yes, legislature. He did. Okay. he did serve in the leg, and I think that's where he made his connections in order to be a census taker, which was kind of an honor at that point in time, oh, okay. a plum position until you got out and to the Kansas heat and mm-hmm. realized. <laughs> Why did I sign up for yes. this? But he actually had to be appointed by okay. somebody. It, it wasn't like it is today where you fill out an application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was really almost more political patronage. Like it was. got the job from. Where, where in Kansas was he from? He was from Phillips County. Okay. Um, Phillips County, Kansas. And so that's where he did his That's his, where he his did census. his census okay. in the Curran in Kerwin, uh, Kerwin, Town, yeah. Kerwin Township. Okay. Yes. So how does he go about his census duties? I mean, at that time, you're talking 1900, you didn't just send an email blast out to folks? <laughs> no, I'm okay. sure he would have appreciated it, though. <laughs> they were they were given pieces of paper. They were given mm-hmm. detailed maps, first okay. of all, of the area that they were supposed to. And it was a jurisdiction that they were supposed to be able to complete in about a month's time. Oh, okay. So he started in the city of Kerwin and started going door-to-door with his little census schedules and I'm sure a pencil, his bag, and his mm-hmm. badge, feeling mm-hmm. very kind of like a kid on the first day of school, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> Got all the supplies. <laughs> yes, ready and to go. he's ready to go. And he started knocking on doors asking for the head of the household. Great. And then he would just ask, you know, whatever questions and whatever questions okay. that were on the schedule that year. Well, that's kind of brings up the point. Do, the, do they still do that? Do census takers still go door to door? Not anymore. They okay. um, stopped that tradition in the early for the 1960s census, I oh, believe okay. it was. They um, now you receive that piece of paper in the mail and you fill it out and return it. So, and if you don't return it, that's when the census taker appears at your door saying, 
I need to know. Okay, so <laughs> you, you still could have a census taker show up, but only if you didn't. Yeah, only if you, you know, so. ignored the three letters beforehand. Okay. So um, everybody everybody out there, all of our listeners, should have gotten a census form and hopefully turned it in. Yes, right? exactly. I hope so. I know th- I haven't checked in a while, but we were doing – the country this time around was doing really good um, mm-hmm. in returning their census information. I think that we – the last count was like estimate was like around eighty percent, something like that, which is pretty good for mm-hmm. a, for a survey. And that always struck me as almost a little bit of an oxymoron. They said, "Well, eighty percent of the people have turned in their census forms." And I thought, "Well, if they know eighty percent of the people, don't they already know the number?" <laughs> but I guess gotta, yes. I've always wondered about that. Like, how do you yes. really know? <laughs> but that doesn't give you the detail of where they are, or how many people live in each congressional district. Right? Yeah, yes. I, know, I, I mean. Know. It's, there's a lot of money attached to making sure that everyone fills out that form on the mm-hmm. federal level. That's mm-hmm. how they give out those dollars. And the census is just now wrapping up, right? I mean, it's, July is mm-hmm. the last time? Yes. Or? I think, you know, I still – I actually saw a census person out this morning. Oh, okay. On, on my way to work. So she had a black bag only. Mm-hmm. It was a much nicer saddle bag that was mm-hmm. over the shoulder and a badge. It wasn't as official looking um, around her neck on – and um, they should be done, I th- guess, at the end of this week. Okay, it's so just the end of the time wrap period. up in July. Yep, and they'll get all the numbers in. And I believe the president wants the information on his desk in January. Wow, okay. Yeah. Well, so. they got a lot of work ahead of us. Yes, they so. do. <laughs> okay. uh, now, how did the museum acquire the satchel and bag? Have we had those for a while? or We, d- we have had them for a while. We've had them since the late 70s, oh, okay. 1979. And um, Bissell's granddaughter gave them to us. Oh, okay. So, yes. So, so mm-hmm. even though 1900, we've, we've still had them for, yeah. Yes, for well, quite a while. Well, years now. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, okay, well, last question on this. Now, when we were working on... Um, this particular artifact, uh, just to give it some context, we noticed in the 1902 Sears catalog there was a nearly identical satchel that sold for a dollar twenty, which sounds like a great deal right now. <laughs> but when you look at what John Bissell was paid as a daily wage for being a census taker, about three that's, bucks. Yeah, yeah, so that's over a third of his salary, which got me to thinking: Is there any work-related item that? You'd spend a third of today's salary on? <laughs> and I don't think there – I said no. At first I said no. There's no, nothing. Yeah. But then I was like, well, um, I love electronics. So okay. I would probably get my – another digital recorder or a digital camera or you know i would upgrade my equipment so and i would use it at work even though i'm not not supposed to to because you're yeah not supposed to bring your personal personal stuff in work yes but that's what i would use you're a much more dedicated employee because my first thought would be donuts i I would spend a third of my salary on donuts donuts and share and i would be happy yeah yes yes i would eat them okay Well, we hope everybody turned in their census form, and we appreciate you coming in and tell us about it, Donna Ray. All right, thanks, Bob. Tour de France, Tour de France. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Museum Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Public Information Officer Teresa Jenkins. Hello. Okay. Well, our uh, regular listeners know, and for those of you that aren't regular listeners, welcome. Uh, But a couple of episodes back, we devoted a Six Degrees of William Allen White to the World Cup, the one-time 
you know, every four years, America pays some attention to soccer. Or maybe I should say five food. people in America pay attention yes, to soccer. Well, there's another sport that's pretty popular around the world that we, again, pretty much ignore except for one time a year, and that's bicycle racing. And the ultimate bicycle race, and probably the only one that most Americans can name, is the Tour de France. Well, this past Sunday, this year's tour finished up in Paris, and Spaniard Alberto Contador was the repeat winner. In this particular tour, as in last year, uh, Lance Armstrong, the American cyclist, uh, took part in it. So in honor of the tour, we here at Six Degrees uh, asked our listeners to connect Mr. White with arguably the best-known cyclist in the world, Lance Armstrong. So... Teresa, could you give us a little background on Mr. Armstrong? Be happy to. And we know a lot of you think that you know things about Lance Armstrong. You, you've seen on TV or, or you've read in certain publications, Inquirer. Um, <laughs> so we're going to tell you some things you may not know about Lance Armstrong. He was born in Plano, Texas on September 18, 1971. He was an athletic, competitive youngster, and at age 13, he won the Iron Kids Triathlon. He soon focused almost exclusively on bicycle training and racing, and he qualified for the Junior World Championship held in Moscow in 1989. By 1991, Armstrong had become the U.S. National Amateur Champion. He then turned pro and won the U.S. Pro Championship in addition to winning stage victories in the Tour de France. Sorry, when I say that, it doesn't yeah. sound as, as elegant as Bob because, no. you know, I got that Kansas France thing well, going on. Well, I took, you know, a year of... High school French. So. Well, there you go. You got the nasal thing yeah, down. France. <laughs> he won a spot on the U.S. Olympic team in both 1992 and 1996, and by 96, Armstrong was ranked the number one cyclist in the world. In October of that year, however, Armstrong received devastating news from his doctor when he was diagnosed with stage 3 testicular cancer and was told that the cancer had spread to his lungs, abdomen, and brain. He was given recovery chances of less than 50%. Attacking his illness with the same determination and tenacity that he did his cycling, Armstrong began an aggressive form of chemotherapy and remarkably beat the disease that threatened to end not only his career, but his life. By January of 1998, Armstrong was back on the bike, training for his return to the world of bicycle racing. Few people expected him to even return to racing, let alone be competitive at it. Yet Armstrong proved the naysayers wrong in 1999 when he won the most grueling bicycle race in the world, the Tour de France. Armstrong went on to add another six tour titles to his resume for an all-time record of seven wins. In 2005, following his last Tour de France victory, Armstrong announced his retirement from professional cycling. He devoted himself to his charitable foundation that raises money to fight cancer, the Live Strong Global Cancer Campaign. You've no doubt seen one or more of the 60 million Livestrong bracelets that have been sold worldwide to raise funds to fight cancer. In 2009, Armstrong announced that he was coming out of retirement to compete again in a Tour de France to raise awareness of cancer. He finished third in that race and announced that he would return for this year's contest. Before the race began, Armstrong announced that it would be his last. The 2010 Tour de France finished just this past Sunday and Armstrong finished 23rd. He plans to continue to focus on his foundation to fight cancer. Do any of us really believe that that was his last? Yeah, I, I think I he's going to pull a Brett Favre. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like all those boxers, you know, that retire oh, right yeah. after the match and then they're back. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 I think he's just too competitive. I yeah. Think, yeah. I think he'll be back. But um, anyway. Okay. Well, thanks, Teresa. And Nikayla, you came up with a solution on this one? I did. All right. This one was tough. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
So um, in 2007, Lance Armstrong, along with several other famous athletes, including uh, Muhammad Ali and Mia Hamm and Cal Ripken Jr., um, established an organization called Athletes for Hope, which helps other professional athletes get involved in charitable work. Muhammad Ali, as most of us know, was born Cassius Clay. Um, he was named for Cassius Marcellus Clay, who was a politician and emancipist from Kentucky, which does sound a little strange, an emancipist from so Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as a student at Yale, um, Clay attended a speech that was given by William Lloyd Garrison, who was a leading abolitionist, and Garrison ins inspired Clay to join the movement. Um, in addition to being an abolitionist, Garrison also believed that women should fully participate in social activities, so he got involved in the women's suffragist movement, and he was greatly influenced by Susan B. Anthony. In the 1860s, Susan B. Anthony made a tour of Kansas to campaign for the suffrage movement, and during that visit, she made a stop at the home of Allen and Mary Hatton White, who were the parents of oh. William Allen White. Wow. So who would have thought Lance Armstrong threw the women's suffragist movement to <laughs> yeah. William Allen White? <laughs> well, and through wow. Muhammad Ali, too. Yeah. Right? yeah. And then when yeah. you said when Clay was at Yale, and I was thinking... Muhammad Ali, Clay, and I thought, well, yeah. I didn't know Muhammad Ali. He went to Yale. Surprise. Thought, wow. No. <laughs> no. Right. No. The, the Ivy League pugilist. That's right, yeah. So, well, good. That, that, that's a good solution. Okay. So, uh, Teresa, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? My pleasure. Our next podcast will be on August 11, which is the second day of National Elvis Week. Yay! <laughs> so we want you to connect William Allen White with the king, Elvis Presley. <laughs> You know, he's alive and well in Vegas. I know yeah. this firsthand. He's alive and well someplace. <laughs> I've been there. I've seen him. Yeah. You know, we can't believe we've done 87 Six Degrees of William Allen White episodes yet, and we haven't connected him with Elvis. Well, see, it's this time. Is, it's time, and it's yeah. National Elvis Week. And if you're wondering why Wednesday is the second day, for some reason, National Elvis Week runs from August 10th to August 16th. So, anyway. Mm. He died in August, right? Uh, yes, I believe he did. In so, 77, I yes. think. So, that's one of those so, where were you moments. I remember uh, I was in graduate school and I was driving to class that morning and the news came on that Elvis I was getting had died. ready for first grade, Bob. I wasn't born yet. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Okay, well, on that note, if you think you can connect William Allen White with the king of rock and roll, Elvis the Pelvis, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S. That concludes episode 112, Count Me In. To see photos of the satchel and badge, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. Hey, here's an idea. The next time you're wasting time on Facebook, come on over and waste it with us. That's right, the Kansas Historical Society is on Facebook. Just type Kansas Historical Society in the Facebook search engine, and there we'll be. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We've got lots of cool stuff that we send out to our friends and followers, so be one of the cool kids and check us out. Come back in two weeks when museum curator Blair Tarr will join me to examine a popular newspaper comic strip from the 1950s that features a uniquely Kansas critter, the mythological Jayhawk. Why did a Jayhawk show up in the nationally syndicated comic strip Pogo? Join us in two weeks to find out. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Down.